Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 22 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Just some brief housekeeping. Firstly, after this episode, we will have one more episode this season and that episode will be our end of season awards. That will be in your podcast feeds two weeks from now. Our episodes are, of course, released on a fortnightly basis with new episodes coming out first thing on a Friday morning. So that end of season awards episode will be with you in two weeks' time. After that, we will take a break over the summer and we'll be back towards the end of July or the start of August for season four of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In terms of this episode, as always, I would direct you to the show notes where you will find a comprehensive running order of the topics we covered in this episode and when. I will, however, give you the usual brief overview. In France, we dissected how Clermont Foot have defied the odds and secured a second consecutive season in French football's top flight. In Spain, we unpacked Espanyol's rather surprising decision to sack Vicente Moreno, despite the club enjoying two objectively successful seasons under his guidance. Elsewhere, in Italy, we used Teo Hernandez's wonder goal for AC Milan against Atalanta as a vehicle through which to analyse more widely the left-back's impressive form for i Rosoneri this season. While in Germany we put Bayer Leverkusen under the Road to Nowhere microscope, looking at how Gerardo Seoane sets the side up to fully harness the power and the potential of Patrick Schick. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. I'm joined by Rudy Barlow, who has decided to honour us with his presence this evening. He's been quite coveted over the last few weeks, but we've been able to arrange matters this evening so that Barlow is with us for the full episode. So Barlow, it's great to have you with us. How are you doing, Barlow? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, I'm working away and I'm looking forward to the end of the season. I think Sid Lowe said that he was crawling towards the end of the season and with very little energy left. And I'm not sure I'm quite that bad, but I'm not miles away from it, put it that way. (laughs) Well, just remember, get your seven hours beauty sleep and uh, you'll you'll be fine. Michael Jones is looking absolutely shattered. I think he had some technical issues today at work, but we're here now to discuss European football. And Michael Jones, apart from being subjected to those technical issues, how has your day been? How are you doing generally? 
Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm still in the office, but um, yeah, since you said there about those seven hours of sleep, I've kind of just switched my entire focus to that until we come back to Italy, of course. Absolutely, Michael. I'm sure you'll be right-eyed and bushy-tailed to tell us all about the latest goings-on in Serie A. But before we get to that, I think it would be appropriate for us to start with Spain, where there has been, yeah, a lot to talk about over the last couple of weeks. Sevilla and Atletico Madrid played out a 1-1 draw at the Wanda Metropolitano last weekend in a match which was most notable for Atleti for the goodbyes of Luis Suarez and Hector Herrera. Both teams avoided disaster and qualified for the Champions League since we last spoke, Sevilla doing so with that point in the capital. All is not well in Andalusia, however, where the atmosphere has taken a turn. Could this perhaps be a more hectic summer in Seville, Barlow? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one, certainly. Just on Atleti, they've obviously qualified, which is, is good for them. More than sort of celebration, as you say, it's more for kind of, kind of added relief for them. And Diego Simeone, I'd argue it's his worst campaign. Julian Lopetegui, probably his worst campaign as Sevilla manager as well. And they've got four wins in their last 16 matches. They're getting booed off home in recent weeks. And uh, I have to say, if it hadn't been for his kind of previous success and the fact that they'd had such good first half of the season, then I think his his job certainly would be in trouble. There had been kind of a, I'd have to say, there's been an atmosphere and a, an almost sort of growing acceptance that perhaps Lopetegui would move on at the end of the season. I think a lot of us, myself included, thought that that would be the case may so well be may well still be on Saturday night. So this is just before the final um or penultimate weekend of games. There was a report that came out of a, a local Sevilla journalist, Jose Manuel Garcia, who said that he would be leaving at the end of the season. Sunday morning, Marca report that Monchi, who's the sort of very prestigious sporting director there, and he's basically the king of Seville, he's uh he's well respected and more or less has has Sevilla at his um disposal in the sense that in, in the sense that he can manage everything from a top-down point of view there. So there was a report in Marca that he'd contacted Diego Martinez, who's a former Granada manager. Some of the listeners may remember that they went far in the Europa League, got to got to the quarterfinals against Manchester United. There's a report that he had been in contact with him in order to replace Lopetegui. So just to give you sort of passage of events here. That happens Saturday night, news breaks, so Sunday morning. And then on the Sunday night, Sevilla obviously get that point. They're celebrating their Champions League. And Monchi comes out on TV and goes absolutely nuts. I mean, he's, he's, he's calm-ish, but he's speaking in that very fast way where you can tell he's completely lost his rag. He's, he's raging. He's, he's really unhappy with the way that it's been portrayed. He's speaking very fast. And very aggressively about the about Marca, he, he calls them out directly and says it's a respectable paper, but um, I've, he said it's malaleche, it's bitterness. So someone is trying to destabilize Sevilla by putting this news out there, which I thought was fascinating because if he really wanted to to sort of put a lid on the rumors and to stop this, then he could have come out and said Lopetegui is staying next year. And Lopetegui himself had said that they, they would analyse things at the end of the season. Monchi said the same thing um, once the season's done, which is which is this weekend coming. And then today, Monchi comes out and says that Lopetegui still has a valid contract and that he's the only path that Sevilla will take. 
which I find fascinating. I, I mean, I wonder, I spoke on this on the podcast a few weeks ago about how Sevilla's recruitment policy, perhaps in my view, could have been better this year. Could have, could have been a bit different, could have gone for sort of younger recruits. And I wonder if Monchi maybe feels, just given the fact that Rafamir hasn't worked out, Yusuf Enaziru hasn't quite come off up front, that's sort of big ones, Ludwig Augustinsson hasn't really worked out. Uh, and generally, the squad does feel like it's lacking a few pieces. I wonder if Monchi feels a little bit of, guilt's the wrong word, but feels like he hasn't quite given Lopetegui enough of the tools that he needs to reach that success. And let's not, let's not be a bit in the bush. Sevilla, they've had a good season overall. They've qualified for the Champions League again for the third season in a row. Historic achievement, as Lopetegui has pointed out, as Monchi has pointed out. But the way that the second half of the season has gone, the fact that Betis have won the Copa del Rey, those things have, have really sort of overshadowed what had been a, what was looking like a really good season for them. I have to say, I think it's it's time for a change. I think Lopetegui, as we said, his style of management is very intense. It's very organised. It's conservative. And I think if you're if if you're doing that, and if it's a point that Alan Feely's made before, if you're playing that kind of football, you need to get results. If the results aren't coming, then you're in trouble. And that's been the case for for Lopetegui in the second half of the season. So I think unless maybe. Monchi feels that a rest will do the squad good, which it will. A summer break just to kind of reset, recalibrate, and he'll bring in some quite a few new signings or, or some big changes to the squad. Maybe sort of a, a changing a cycle of the squad more than the manager. Then I can't see exactly what the process is for keeping up taking because he's got one year left on his deal. To be honest, I can't see, see it going dramatically up. I don't think next season they'll have the strength to win the title unless he thinks that he can he can drop into the Europa League and win that. I, I just don't see how this gets better for Lopetegui. And from that point of view, I think separation is best for everyone. I think Diego Martinez is a sensible appointment. I'll come on to him in a wee minute. But, but yeah, I just think that there's a perhaps an attitude of not... I, I don't know if, if perhaps this is a, a move from Monchi to... As out of respect for Lopetegui to ensure that people aren't speculating about his job towards the end, that he doesn't think that the club has gone behind his back. That's that's also another possibility. But I'm struggling to see the logic in keeping Lopetegui beyond this summer from Monchi's point of view, personally. Meanwhile, down at the bottom of the table, Alaves and Levante most recently played at the Ciotat de Valencia Stadium in a 3-1 victory for Levante. That's despite the fact that Levante were relegated last week against Real Madrid. Alaves needed to win to stay up, but ultimately couldn't. Both of these teams have been favourites to go down, but what conclusions can we draw from their seasons as a whole? Yeah, Alaves, I mean, we've kind of known that Alaves were going down, even though that they were still alive until the second last week of the season. And and they still had, I mean, they had decent enough games at Cadiz and they've got Cadiz this weekend. And they had Levante, as you say, who are already relegated and a chance still to just about hang on to their hopes. But this relegation has been coming. Um, Hosselu is the sort of saving grace of this side. He's scored or at least contributed to over 50% of their goals without him their attack is almost non-existent they've had 13 coaches in their six years since they came up 
and they're on to the third this year. I've spoken before about how basketball is almost a priority now, though, is that their basketball team who share the same owners, owners are, are the team that gets kind of more of the investment. And the fact that they've continued into this season, having seen the I don't know if miracle is the right word, but Javier Keja got them out of a big hole last season right at the end. And having seen that, to not then go and sort of reshape the squad to bring in, they brought in a couple of decent players. Mamadou Loom's been good for them, but they've not really given Hosselu much help in attack. And defensively, they're still I think, the third worst defence in the division. So, so yeah, it's, it's a continual sort of loss of quality year on year, I think. I think once they reached their height kind of under Abelardo in, in about 2017-18 and, and since then it's just been sort of a gradual descent to the bottom of the table, which is where they are now. From Levante's point of view, it's almost, I, I mean, we sort of mentioned in the chat, Ali, like sort of complacency. And it's almost sort of a more exaggerated version of what's happened to Alaves because it's happened almost in the space of a season exactly. They got to the Copa del Rey semifinals last uh, sort of March is when they lost and went out of that. And towards the end of the season, they lost a lot of games. They drew a lot of games. And they got that sort of run. They weren't very engaged with the rest of the season, let's say. And that, that's fair enough because they were kind of mid-table, fairly comfortable. They got to the Copa del Rey semi-finals, historic achievement for Levante. And they were comfortable. But that slackening off, they never really got back to sort of the hard work and the attitude that they needed to survive in this division until sort of, I want to say, January, February of this year. And they've had three coaches in, in this season. They've had, they went 27 games without winning, which was, which was a record. And Jose Luis Morales came out after they got beaten by Real Madrid. They got beaten 6-0 to con confirm their relegation and said, yeah, this, this fault is ours. If you go 27 games without winning, you, you're going to get relegated. And that complacency that we talked about, Levante, something we always say that they've got one of the more talented squads in La Liga. They've got one of the more talented attacks in La Liga, but the defensive issues are so glaring. And when you've got Martin Cáceres and Scott Andrew Staffy, sort of yesteryear centre-halves that have been discarded by a lot of top division clubs, you're going to be going to be in trouble. And I think the fact that they, again, sort of rested on their laurels and fa failed to sort of invest, or, or not even invest, but but develop. Um, and the fact that they brought in Javi Pereira, thinking this is an organiser, defensive manager who can come in and just organise Paco Lopez's squad instead of actually looking at the glaring issues, which were the defensive problems. Uh, and perhaps they did need to change the cycle, but but yeah, there was there was bigger issues than Paco Lopez at the start of the season for Levante. They didn't address them, and they've ended up going down. I do want to say that they do deserve credit, though, because the way they, they played over the last sort of five, six years has been... Phenomenal. They've been one of the most entertaining watches in La Liga. And I want to say that it does matter to be aesthetically pleasing because I think there's an outpouring of grief, the wrong word, but sadness and sort of melancholy that Levante were going down because they are one of the more entertaining teams. And I think the fact that La Liga loses them makes it a worse league because so many of those bottom half teams, they go for conservatism over sort of an open style. And La Liga is going to lose a lot from that.
Yeah, really important message to finish on there with them. Elsewhere, Espanyol were one of the three promoted sides this season. And going into the final weekend, all three have a chance of staying up. Espanyol have done so comfortably. Two days before their final home game of the season, though, Vicente Moreno was sacked, despite having achieved his objectives there. Two campaigns, one promotion, and comfortably mid-table this season. Just how has he ended up losing his job? Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a strange one. Again, I, I come back to the aesthetics. I think it matters. I think the fact that Espanol, even towards the end of last season when they went up, there was always a sort of they they, they were in first or second place for quite some time, and and people sort of cottoned on to the fact that they were going up with a few games left. And even towards the end of last season, when they were by far sort of the best squad in the league, I think there wasn't some Espanol fans were starting to question his moves, his tactical moves, the lack of sort of ambition in terms of the games that always been kind of happier to be defensively solid and then going forward. And that's kind of continued into this season, but obviously on a bigger scale because you're not winning as many matches, you're playing against better teams. And although they've achieved their objectives, there's just a complete disconnect between Vicente Moreno and his squad, I think, because they turned up for certain games and then others, they completely down tools, especially away from home. And I think to see sort of the, the contrast between Espanol home and away, Espanol are one of the worst teams in the division away from home. It's really, it's done for him. And I think the fact that he couldn't get through to those players, the fact that he couldn't motivate them 100% of the time was a big issue for him. He had a falling out with Raul Bet Tomas on the touchline very visibly at the Santiago Bernabeu. He, he grabbed his collar um, on the bench and, and that was kind of picked up by the cameras and a sign that all was not well with Espanol. But yeah, it was. Um, I think it was time. I don't think that... I think Vicente Moreno, he's got a very good claim to be a good manager and he can leave with his head high in a sense because he can say, I've achieved everything that I needed to achieve. But he probably wasn't getting through to his players. And once that becomes the case, it's hard to, to redirect yourself in the right direction. They've also sacked the sporting director, Rufete. They sacked the CEO in March. Um, that's Rufete and, and Jose Manuel Duran. In comes Mauge as the CEO. And they've appointed Domingo Catoira as the, as the sporting director, who I have to say I don't know huge amounts about. about. He's been promoted from technical sector, secretary. I wonder if to a certain extent that he's an inside house man in the sense that they have maybe a little bit more power over him. Um, but yeah, they've been linked with Diego Martinez, who for my money would be a great appointment with that squad as well. Um, and we have to remember that this is a team that has invested quite a lot of money. Raul de Tomas, Sergi Dardera are, are big players in terms of where Espanol were. And uh, it's interesting times ahead at Espanol because I do think that they have the squad to be aspiring to more. Fantastic, as always, Barlow. And might I add, it's great to have the three of us on the call at the same time. It's been a while, I think, since that's happened. So, yeah, really enjoyed having the three of us talking to each other there. Okay, we are going to take a quick break. Hopefully, by the time we come back from that quick break, Michael Jones hasn't fallen asleep. He does look particularly tired I'm sure he'll perk himself up for his Serie A section but before we get to Serie A we're going to look at a feel-good story from France we're going to look at the success of Cremont Foot we'll be right back 
In France, there was an almost universal pre-season expectation that newly promoted Clermont Foot would finish the 2021-22 Liga campaign in the relegation places. And yet, despite their well-documented lack of experience at this level, Pascal Gastien's side have secured a second consecutive season in French football's top flight, with a game to spare. Inspired in part by the excellent Mohamed Bayou, Les Lanciers could find themselves as high as 14th place in the table come the end of match day 38. So, just how remarkable an achievement is Clermont's survival in itself? And holistically speaking, what factors have enabled the club from southeast central France to defy the preseason odds, Ali? A sweeper podcast tweeted back in January, Barlow at Clermont Stadium, starred Gabriel Montpellier is the second smallest stadium in Europe's top five leagues with a capacity of 10,363. Now, the smallest stadium, as an aside, is Spezia's Stadio Alberto Pico, which holds 10,336. So I think that fact in itself really speaks to Clement's achievement, and I suppose in Italy as well, it speaks to Spezia's achievement, Michael. Uh, but coming back to Clement Foot and Going back to the Stade Gabriel Montpellier, it's a really quirky stadium, Michael, and I actually find it quite therapeutic to browse Google Maps and use the Street View function to explore places in different areas across the world. As it so happens, one of my favourite areas to explore is in and around the Stade Gabriel Montpellier. Now, maybe some of the listeners are hearing me say that and thinking that's a bit weird that's a bit geeky but maybe what I've said has, has resonated with a few listeners Um, I don't know what it is but yeah I find it quite soothing quite a good way to relax after a long day and yeah one of my favourite areas to explore is that area in and around the Stade Gabriel Montpellier the stadium was built in 1995 and its iconic I-shaped stand was actually inspired by Limerick's Tomond Park and the two stands behind the goal are uncovered, which I think adds an extra layer of character to the stadium. Anyway, I really like the ground and I'm glad it will be seeing league and football again next season. Barlow. In terms of just how remarkable an achievement their survival is, I really do think it's up there with Leicester City's title win in 2016 and Greece's Euro 2004 campaign. The City as you may well know, is known more for its rugby union team, which is apparently one of the best in Europe, or so I'm told. I'm not terribly into my rugby, and so, yeah, I can't say for certain whether or not Claremont's rugby team is any good, but when I was doing my research, uh, apparently, yeah, Claremont's rugby union team is decent, as they say. But, yeah, what I'm trying to get across is that football is very much the second sport in Claremont film. What's more, Clermont Foot in their current form were only formed in 1984. So of the 19 other clubs currently in Ligue 1, 17 had already played in French football's top flight by the time Clermont became a club. That particular point was highlighted in an excellent article written by Cameron Smith for Get French Football News. Do go and check that article out for a little bit more insight into Clermont Foot. I really enjoyed that article. Quite simply, Coming back to what was expected of Clermont at the start of the season, it felt like they would almost certainly go straight back down to League 2. And yet, in the form of Mohamed Bayo, they have had a striker capable of propelling them to safety. 
last season. Of course, the 23-year-old scored 22 goals in League 2 as Clermont finished second to secure promotion. And there was, of course, plenty of speculation linking him with a move away from the club over the summer. Now, thankfully, for Clermont's sake, anyway, he chose to stay at the start Gabriel Montpellier for another season. And he's gone on to score 13 goals in 31 league and appearances. Now, what I want to stress is that the majority of those goals have been decisive. In other words, his goals have been the match winner or the goal to secure a point more often than not. Now, by my calculations, his goals have earned Clermont a massive 21 points over the course of the season. And when you take into account their total for the season, I think their total is 35 points going into the final day of the season. That's a huge amount of those points, and those points have been crucial. What's more, when Bio was away at AFCON representing Guinea, Clermont only scored two goals in four games without him, which I think, again, further highlights his importance to the team. I'll again bang that same drum about Bio being so important to Clermont Footman. I say that his 13 goals represent 35% of the team's total for the season. They scored 37 goals in total. Only Monaco have been more reliant, shall we say, on the goals of one player, with Sam Ben Yedder's goals have been really important for the Principality Club. I think that, again, speaks to just how important Mohamed Bio has been for Clermont Foot as they've been able to avoid the drop. What makes Bio's success at Clermont all the more endearing, Barlow, is the fact that Bio actually grew up on a housing estate in La Gauthier, a neighbourhood which is literally just a few streets away from Clermont Stadium and he's been with the club since he was six years old so he is very much one of their own they would be well within their rights the Clermont fans to sing that Mohamed Bayo is one of their own I know that the Spurs fans sing that about Harry Kane and those or that particular claim is sometimes contested by Arsenal fans but Clermont foot fans could yeah absolutely sing that Mohamed Bayo is one of their own he is cherished he is an absolute hero at the Stade Gabriel Montpellier what I would say is that while Bio is a good striker, he's not an elite striker and he probably never will be. Beyond his unquestionable goal-scoring ability, Bio's underlying numbers aren't too impressive. Barlow, he's in the 24th percentile for progressive carries. He's in the 24th percentile for carries into the penalty area. He's in the 43rd percentile for pressure supplied he's in the 19th percentile for touches and he's in the 37th percentile for shot creating action so those underlying numbers aren't too impressive but despite that bio and his goals have just been so so important for Clermont in their debut league and season now Clermont are of course more than just Mohamed bio their coach Pascal Gastian was quite astonishingly omitted from the league and Manager of the Year shortlist. For me, anyway, that was a really quite disappointing decision, that decision to omit Gastian from that shortlist. Tending to deploy a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3, the job Gastian has done at Claremont Foot is nothing short of remarkable. Barlow, adding to the fairy tale as well, shall we say Gastian's son, Yuan has played a key role as a holding midfielder, bringing balance, experience, composure and a degree of control to the team. He's in the 97th percentile for progressive passes, 98th percentile for touches, 92nd percentile for interceptions and 99th percentile for switches. He loves a 
diagonal pass, switching the ball across the field of play. And as you know, Bill, as you know, Michael, I love a diagonal ball across the park. Gastian and Yuan Gastian, that is, is absolutely in the team on merit. And he's not there because he's the son of the coach. His long-range passing in particular is remarkable. It's superb. It's really pleasing on the eye. As a whole, Clermont play with bravery. They play with fluidity and they play with a refreshing energy. While their expected goal difference actually places them 11th in the table. So based on that particular underlying statistic, you really do have to heap praise on Clermont foot. Looking ahead to next season, I would think Clermont should have two priorities, at least two priorities anyway. Firstly, they need to do everything they can to keep hold of Mohamed Bayou. He's under contract until 2024. And there is, of course, that whole local hero aspect. So he may well stay for another season at the Stade Gabriel Montpellier. There is that connection. Barlow, he is also very close to his mother. And yeah, his mother, of course, stays in clermont Ferrand. So that might work in Clermont's favour. I think it's the perfect environment for him. He's adored. He's close to his family. He's been at the club for so long. So they may well be able to get at least one more season with Mohamed Bayo at the start, Gabriel Montpellier. Secondly, Clermont really do need to invest in a new goalkeeper to replace Artur Desmas. Artur Desmas's post-shot expected goals, minus goals allowed figure, tells us that he's conceded eight more goals than he perhaps should have. Only Bordeaux's Benoit Costello has performed more poorly in that regard. So if they can keep hold of Bio, if they can upgrade their goalkeeper, and if they can generally recruit quite sensibly, you would have to think that Clermont would be in a good place to build on the success of this campaign and finish more comfortably in mid-table next season. Regardless, I'm just delighted that we're going to see more league on action at Stade Gabriel Montpellier next season. If you've not already checked it out, do go and have a look at it. It's a brilliant stadium. It's a quirky stadium. It's up there, in my eyes anyway, with Braga's stadium for its unique nature. Let's see how they get on during the close season and going on into next season. Okay, we're going to wrap that up there in terms of our analysis of the latest goings on in French football. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back to discuss German football. We're going to put Patrick Schick under the Road to Nowhere microscope. We'll be right back. In Germany, Bayer Leverkusen headed into an otherwise highly material final day of the season with third place finish and a Champions League spot already guaranteed. For a side somewhat synonymous with late season collapses, Leverkusen have been almost untouchable since the winter break picking up 36 points from their last 17 games. No club managed more over the same period. One player in particular who has played an integral role for Gerardo Seuani's side is 26-year-old Czech forward Patrick Schick. Off the back of a magnificent Euro 2020 with his national team, Schick has registered 24 Bundesliga goals for Leverkusen across the 21-22 campaign. So Ali, just how good is Patrick Schick? And looking at the team as a whole, how do Leverkusen play in order to harness his full power and potential? I do think there's an argument to be made, Michael, that in terms of his finishing and his goal-scoring ability, Schick is probably just about up there with some of the best in Europe. You quite rightly mentioned his 24 goals in the Bundesliga this season and what makes that tally 
all the more impressive is the fact that he reached it in just 27 league appearances. He missed seven match days across two spells on the sideline. Now, as it so happens, um, he only ever went two games in the starting 11 in a row without scoring. So for Schick to be so consistent over the full season, notwithstanding those injuries, is, yeah, it's really quite commendable. Schick's intelligence of movement, his positional awareness, his leadership qualities as well, his ability, yeah, to be in the right place at the right time. All of those attributes make Schick one of the finest natural goal scorers in Europe, for my money anyway. Just looking at his underlying numbers, he's in the 99th percentile for non-penalty expected goals per 90. He's in the 97th percentile for goals per shot. And he's second in the Bundesliga this season for shots on target per 90. So he's taking plenty of shots and he's scoring plenty of goals with those shots. And he's, yeah, he's getting into really productive areas. With Schick, you're getting a goal scorer for sure. But for completeness, we should probably just flag that some of his underlying numbers aren't terribly impressive. He's in the 22nd percentile for progressive carries per 90. He's in the 39th percentile for shot creating actions per 90. And he's in the 9th percentile for successful pressures per 90. That said, Michael, I do think we can probably disregard those figures for the most part anyway. And I say that because those numbers are largely the byproduct of A, the role he's been asked to play and B, the wider system in which he tends to operate. Schick strikes me as a very intelligent forward with this ability to time his movement and his finishes perfectly. In that sense, Michael, he's, he's a coach's dream. Just looking at Bayer Leverkusen more generally and answering the second part of the question you put to me, Michael, it's evident that coach Gerardo Selwan sets his team up primarily to feed Patrick Schick. And as we've seen, the Czech forward has a really quite sizable appetite for goals. Usually in the league, Leverkusen would line up in a 4-2-3-1 formation with Schick spearheading the attack. Now, quite tellingly, in the seven league games, Schick missed through injury. Selwan deviated from that formation four times that suggests to me anyway that the team is maybe not exactly built around the 26 year old but that it is absolutely designed to fully harness the potential to fully harness the power shall we say of Patrick Schick as well as benefiting from being deployed as the team's focal point Schick also benefits from the services of a quite brilliant if somewhat inconsistent supporting cast now, I'm going to cite Reese Desmond and his brilliant mastermind site again. I cited them in the last episode and I'm going to cite them again now. Reese Desmond wrote an in-depth article on Leverkusen's approach and attack and that was published, I think it was in December time. It was a few months ago. Anyway, and in brief, what Reese observed and what Reese wrote about in the article was the fact that Leverkusen looked to move the ball forward as quickly as possible in transition. They look to create high-quality chances for Schick in transition, and they really look to prevent the opposition from having any real time to get settled at the back. Now, the pace of Musa Diaby and the decision-making of Florian Wirtz up until his injury in March 
anyway, have really enabled Leverkusen to to their defences apart. Uh, they've actually scored 80 Bundesliga goals and that is the highest ever tally Leverkusen have recorded in a single Bundesliga campaign. And that is as a result of the way in which Selwani has yeah, he's set them up to attack. He's set them up to feed Patrick Sheik and he's had the perfect players to fit that system. Just in terms of the numbers beyond those goals scored, Florian Wirtz set up Patrick Sheik for seven goals this season and Moussa Diaby set up Patrick Sheik for six goals this season. Only Thomas Muller setting up Robert Lewandowski on eight occasions can better those numbers in the Bundesliga this season and we think, let's just think for a minute of the plaudits which Thomas Muller and Robert Lewandowski receive. They'd only combined for a Lewandowski goal one more time than Florian Wirtz set up Patrick Sheik and only on two more occasions than Moussa Diaby set up Patrick Sheik. So the system is set up to serve Patrick Sheik with as many high quality chances as possible and the system quite clearly works. Sheik is scoring plenty of goals, he's being provided with assists from his supporting cast and yeah, opposition defences really could not cope with Leverkusen in transition. As an aside, I do just want to highlight one point before moving on to my closing remark. Michael, you quite rightly highlight their excellent second half of the season. No team has picked up more points in the rook rounder this season than Bayer Leverkusen. Now, let's contrast that with last season when Leverkusen's rook rounder form, Leverkusen's catastrophic rook rounder form, would have placed them just three points ahead of the relegation playoff place and we do see a considerable improvement when we take their second half of the season form last season and we contrast that with their form in the second half of this season. You might actually remember Michael, now this was slightly before the halfway point in the season, this was in match day 13. Bayer Leverkusen were playing Bayern Munich, they were one point ahead of Bayern Munich going into this game and so when they took that 1-0 lead, they were sitting four points ahead of Bayern Munich. And if my memory serves me correctly, that was one of the last games before the winter break. So can you imagine if Bayer Leverkusen had gone into that winter break four points ahead of Bayern Munich? Psychologically, that would have been huge for Bayer Leverkusen. Nevertheless, they collapsed after taking that lead against Bayern Munich and yeah, psychologically, that had a huge impact on them and their season. They slid down the table and their route round the form was catastrophic. On a closing note, the table really is set for Patrick Sheik at Bayer Leverkusen. He's had to overcome adversity of sorts at the likes of Sparta Prague and Roma, as you well know, Michael. But he's developed into a top-class striker and he really seems to have found a home at the Bayerina. He's contracted until 2025 for what that's worth. There will, of course, be speculation this summer linking him with a move away from the Bayerina. But if Leverkusen can keep hold of him, if they can keep hold of Moussa Diaby, and if they can get Florian Wirtz back fit, he, of course, suffered that horrendous injury back in March then you would fancy Leverkusen to give a good account of themselves in next season's Champions League. I think they'll be a great addition back in Europe's elite club competition. 
And yeah, I'm excited to see how they get on. I think Gerardo Seoan has proven himself to be a capable manager at the top level. And he's proven that he can get this Bayer Leverkusen team to play good football and consistently to play good football. Let's see if they can keep hold of Schick. Let's see if they can keep hold of Diaby. And let's see yeah, how Florian Wirtz fares when he returns from his long-term injury. I'm really looking forward to seeing how they get on in the Champions League. Okay, we're going to wrap up our analysis of Bayer Leverkusen there. We're going to turn our attention to Italy. Michael Jones is waiting in the wings. He's been waiting patiently after his long day at work. We'll be right back. AC Milan took another giant step towards winning a first Scudetto in 11 years after they defeated Atalanta 2-0. Whilst Rafa Leal continued his scintillating form with the opener, it was Teo Hernandez's second which took all of the plaudits. With a goal of which even FIFA players would have dreamt. Just how impressive has the left-back been this season, Michael? Yeah, he's been absolutely fantastic this season. And I feel kind of guilty that I'm only talking about it now following an amazing goal that he's scored, which I'll come on to describe very shortly as it's um, fully worthy of it. But yeah, I feel like I've waxed lyrical about so many AC Milan players this season. And I think Teo Hernandez's impact at AC Milan, he's kind of always been, hes he has flaws to his game, but he's been such a big attacking weapon for them from defence since arriving. We've kind of just got used to it. And I think that's maybe why he's been overlooked slightly. But if I was guilty of overlooking him, it's very much the case that, you know, come with the moment, come with the man, this was just an incredible moment. I mean, I kind of think, for those who haven't seen it, the starting position is kind of similar to Human Sons versus Burnley, people may remember from a couple of seasons ago. But he picks it up virtually on the edge of his own area. And he, instead of just like running straight and knocking it past people, he actually runs infield, changes the direction of where the opposition players are before using his sheer pace, which we know he's got that in abundance of. And he just drives and drives and drives at the Atalanta defence. And maybe the most impressive bit is, is that Atalanta know of his threat. And as he's approaching the penalty area, you've got Atalanta's back free, dropping off to the edge of the area, but forming quite a tight, or is looking like a quite a tight looking unit. And the way that he, one of his best skills is the use of his feints. And he feints just so elegantly that he leaves them all sort of almost colliding into each other, giving him that half half a yard to just bomb past him with that kind of, he must be running on pure adrenaline at this point to run to the sort of left corner of the box before firing it past in the bottom corner, past Musso. And it was just simply a sensational goal from a player who's been sensational. I think Mark has described it as a basketball goal. He's described it himself as the most important goal of his life. And maybe AC Milan's best outfield or most dangerous outfield player in the last few weeks has been Rafael Leao, who also operates on that left side. And on that left side, they've just been absolutely lethal. It's been where the majority of their attacks have come down. And you could almost put down this title win from an attacking sense to the power that they have on that left-hand side with maybe the two best players in Italy in that position and arguably two players who... You forget that Teo Hernandez, he's, you know, he's actually been around, he feels like he's been around for quite a long time, three seasons in Italy, but previous stint people will remember Real Madrid, 
started in the Atletico Madrid team. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's kind of come, he's still only 24. He's now starting to play a more prominent role for the France national team, scoring a really important goal in the UEFA Nations League against Belgium late last year as well. And Overall, if you look at his sort of three seasons since arriving, he's had 20 assists and 20 goals. He's in the top percentiles for a very good attacking fullback. He's in the top percentiles and the top 10 percentiles for non-penalty expected goals and assists, uh, for shots and for dribbles completed, and not far off for other statistics such as expected assists and progressive carries. Whereas if you look at his defensive stats, the best he really features in this for Precious, where he's in the 53rd, which gives you an idea of where his strengths lie. But once again, I feel like when we credited players this season, we've often come back to the work done by Stefano Pioli. And Pioli's maybe, in order to give Rafa Leal that more, we talked about his progressive carries recently and the way Leal's been carrying the ball from deep. He's almost started Teo Hernandez from a bit of a deeper position this season, rather than just giving him endless permission to just bomb all the way down the wing, which he still does. He just uses it, does it so much more sensibly. And that's, I guess, something you would also expect for a player developing under a good manager who's been excellent with young players. But, I mean, it, overall, I'd say, you know, it's very fitting that AC Milan could be winning a league. They're just one game away now, so Swallow on the final day, and that they could be winning it with a left-back, you know, with a left-back who's so important to him, you know, everybody knows the role that Paolo Maldini played for the Rossoneri over the years. Interestingly, Maldini played a massive role in securing Teo Hernandez, who ironically was close to, very close to just joining by Leverkusen, we've just spoken about. But yeah, he's simply been tremendous this season, really developing finally. And obviously the only thing missing for them now is the title which is you know far from certain against a tough Sassuolo team but what a way to put them in the best position possible The title race will go down to the final day after Inter Milan registered a 3-1 victory over Cagliari Despite a valiant effort from the Sardinian side they find themselves in the relegation zone ahead of match day 38 with a caretaker coach in Alessandro Agostini Ahead of an away trip to already relegated Venezia, how should we assess their chances of avoiding the drop, Michael? Yeah, I mean, initially you'd think, oh, let's base this off the previous game they've just played, which was that defeat, like you said, against Inter Milan. And they did really well at one point to get themselves back in it under Agostini. Um, it was a great strike from Charolampas Licogianis with an absolute thunderbolt of a strike, which made Inter Milan turn really nervy. It looked like it might actually wrap up the Serie A title race sooner than it was. But they couldn't quite find their way back into the game. But in terms of where I'd say this kind of leaves Cagliari and where they, you know, you'd think of that performance, there's certainly positives they can take. But going into this game against Venezia at the end of, uh, for the last game of the season, one of the things I'd say is that you, I'm still not in any better of a position to predict how Cagliari are going to fare because ultimately they've been so hard to predict all season. And I think there's a few reasons for this. I mean, if you look at the squad from the outside, it's a tr- tremendously talented squad. You know, you've got the likes of Nahid Hernandez, Chao Pedro, the captain, the forward, who's been a regular goal scorer in Serie A for a number of years. 
Gaston Pereiro, a player who was signed a few years ago from PSV, who was one of the top performers in the Eredivisie, um, alongside Keita Balde, who, who I will come back to is really kind of interesting case study because we're almost at the 2022 World Cup now and you think back to the 2018 World Cup and you look at Sadio Mane who's maybe once again re-establishing himself as one of the world's best players but there wasn't actually that much of a gulf in that Senegal team when you look back to the 2018 World Cup in terms of where people thought Sadio Mane and Keita Baldi were such was his rise and how well he'd done at Lazio a few years ago but his form's really dropped off and I think there's just been so many players where you've got these big names and they just haven't been able to live up to the reputations that they've come in with and, you know, reputations that they've rightly built earlier in their careers. And I think it's maybe something that you look at maybe with the ownership. Um, they've The ownership's maybe one of the lower key case studies in Italian football when we've looked at some of the new ones, Salonitana, Genoa teams around them, Spezia in the past year or so. And Cagliari have actually had the same owners Lewis since 2014 and they are a Sardinian pharmaceutical company who took over from Massimo Cellino, who everybody will remember, not just for his stint at Cagliari, but for his stint at Leeds, where he made all the headlines for the wrong reasons, essentially. But since their return to the Serie A in 2016, they've constantly chopped and changed managers. They've not finished above 14 for the past four seasons. And there's just been a real, not always really a sign of regression, maybe until this season and last season when they were in a relegation fight till late on. But there's just not been a sign of progression. And it almost seems to be a club at the moment who are, taking on these sort of high quality, high profile players without really a long term plan. The appointment of Walter Mazzari, you could have said, signified that Walter Mazzari was sacked at the beginning of this month. And his last few stints since that brilliant Napoli spell he had a few almost a decade ago now, he's not really quite lived up to it in his 10 years at clubs after that. You know, he had, he had some success at Torino, but received a lot of criticism for his playing standards and his playing style. And I think ultimately they're going to come into this last game as favourites. It looks like they're going to be deploying a back four, contrary to what Mazzari's have been deploying for most of the season. And it is still in their hands with Salernitana to play Udinese on the last day. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But we could be looking at a really quite prominent Serie A club to be relegated from Serie A. It's a very serious possibility. One outcome of Calgary's defeat against Inter was that it confirmed the relegation of Genoa, who will be playing in Serie B next season for the first time in 15 years. A few weeks ago, we discussed the progress they seemed to be making under German coach Alexander Blessan, but ultimately that was not enough. How will Genoa's absence affect Serie A? And do you expect the nine times champions of Italy to make a swift return to the top flight, Michael? Yeah, I mean, to start with, Genoa's loss from the Serie A is a shame. It's, you know, they're one of Italy's most historic clubs. They're Italy's oldest professional football club. They won the league nine times before 1924. And of course, there's always recency bias. But I think it's very appreciated the role that Genoa play and Genoa have in Italian football. And I think like if we look towards the role that they have also in the Genoa derby, 
um, with Sampdoria, which was one of the recent games, which the Derby della Lanterna, which looks like it may have consigned them to, you know, one of the games that consigned them to relegation. It's a really big loss. And I think it's a real shame, actually. I think, you know, one of those teams that looked like they were kind of turgid, looked like they were kind of going nowhere for quite a long time. And their new ownership that came in at the beginning of this season looked like it might really start to bear fruits and maybe the start of a new beginning. I remember we were discussing them when Andrei Shevchenko came in in December for that short but ill-fated spell. Um, the new ownership was kind of looking at, you know, they may be looking to replicate what Newcastle were doing. And if you look at the trajectories of those two clubs, they've been polar opposite since then. But when Alexander Blessing arrived, he kind of arrived with, he promised in his first press conference, he promised high velocity football. Um, but it's not been anything of the sorts. They started with the remarkable seven draws in his opening seven games at the club. They've only actually lost five games. Uh, out of around 15 since he's taken over. And they have picked up wins, including a really recent one, a 2-1 victory over Juventus. So it's to say Blessing's not actually done that good a job there isn't strictly true. But I think Genoa, under Blessing, we've not really seen the true signs of them working together yet. And for that reason, I really hope that he stays in Serie B, which is kind of coming to your next question that you asked. And with... He, this is a German manager who made his name at Clevio Stend in Belgium, and they were playing a 5-3-2, but almost like a 5-1-2-2, where they would really pile up the attacking midfielders to support the strikers in quite a narrow but high-press and exciting system. It's not something that we've seen Blessing implement at all. He's gone with a back four the entire time he's been here. So you do wonder whether he's had the trust in playing personnel. Um, and you do wonder what kind of overhaul there will be. I discussed a few weeks ago that they kind of replicated something similar we saw at Parma last season when they signed a lot of young players, replaced a lot of old players with young players in January. And some of them have looked promising. But Serie B is quite a notoriously hard league to attract young players to. So that will certainly be one of his challenges and maybe we'll put the emphasis on his, his sort of scouting, the scouting team and his judgment of a player even more so going into next season. But I don't think, despite their first relegation in 15 years, and their impact in Serie A hasn't been that great from a viewing perspective since they first came up under Gian Piero Gasparini. But it's a, it's a great shame to see them go down. And But I do think the signs are there that they will bounce back really quickly. Well, let's see how Genoa fare next season as they do look to bounce. But quickly, let's see if what you've just said comes true. Michael, in any event, it, yeah, it's, it's quite something to see uh, one of the institutions of Italian football be relegated, but such is football. Well, thank you, Michael, for that insight into the latest goings-on in Italian football. Enlightening and insightful, as always. Thank you to you, Michael, and thank you to you, Uri Barlow. Thank you as well to you, the listener. We'll have one more episode this season, which will be in your podcast feeds, as always, two weeks today, early on Friday morning. So we'll have that episode, and then we'll take a break over the summer before coming back, re-energised, revitalised, 
for next season. We'll have those details with you in the next episode. But in the meantime, and looking ahead to that episode in two weeks' time, which will be our end of season awards, please do stay well. Please do stay safe. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Goodbye.